I'm on the ride of a lifetime. I'm on a ship that's sailing to uncharted shore, and I won't be coming back here. Live from Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter, where we do all we can to try to worship God in spirit and in truth. I'm your host, Sean McCraney. Uh, you don't know this, but before we uh, start here in the studio, we do all sorts of things. We pass food around, and we always pray, and, 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 and uh, RJR just prayed that we would always uh, seek to be in God's will, and that we would always seek truth, and it's a great prayer. I mean, all prayers are great. But that one strikes me because we, we want to seek the truth. And we're men, we're women, we're going to make mistakes. I'm going to make them. But we are truth seekers in the name of Jesus. Because Jesus said the Father seeks such to worship Him in spirit and in truth. Got a lot to talk about tonight. And admittedly, everything is aimed at trying to promote subjective Christianity and what it entails over objective brick-and-mortar Christianity and what it has historically produced and represented in the world. Had a man tell me that he was in the LDS genealogy library the other day, and my name came up, and a German woman stepped up out of nowhere and said, that man is a bastard. He tries to destroy the church. Um, so that might be sort of true. Uh, Met a couple of LDS fellows by chance in a coffee shop the other morning. One of them said his wife said, you know that Sean McCraney does not believe in the Bible anymore. That is not true at all, in the least. Then my brother and friend, Dr. Ott, informed me through an email that there is a small movement afoot that is seeking to categorize this ministry and campus in the church as an offshoot of Mormonism. These Christian brothers have gone so far as to take Joseph Smith's claims and assign them to me. The longer I live, the more I believe that we see what we want to see, we believe what we want to believe, and it takes some real effort to, as RJR prayed, remain in the truth. In any case, it seems that this recent ploy is intended to remove me and what some of the things I teach from Christianity, the body of Christ, and sort of reassign me as an offshoot of Mormonism and it's being done so that I won't be accepted as a brother and therefore I am completely compromised, etc., etc. I want my assailants to know I love them and uh, will not retaliate, but I do want to make a couple things clear. The similarities that I have with the views of Joseph Smith 
are not limited to the views of Joseph Smith. Anyone who is frustrated with church history, creedal Christianity, man's interference into the relationship that we have with God through Christ alone, uh, share Smith's frustrations that he had and other people that, that they've had too. Do such frustrations make me a Mormon? Not at all. Uh, in the name of clarity, let me personally, publicly now renounce completely Mormonism as it stands as a counterfeit gospel. Uh, this includes everything that makes it distinct, including its priesthoods, its temples, its extra-biblical books, its views on God and Godhead, the ontology of God, their soteriology, its baptisms. I mean, I really share nothing with Mormon doctrine and very, very little with their praxis. Turning the tables, I have almost everything in common with Bible-believing Christians. Everything. The good news, monotheism, one God, Jesus is God in the flesh, the Word uncreated, the Holy Spirit as God in spirit, the Bible is his trusted word. Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life. He's the author and finisher of faith. His death, I believe in his resurrection. I believe in his ascension. I think salvation is by grace through faith. I believe there's a great importance of love exuding from every believer. But because I have disagreed with two non-essentials, non-essentials, eternal punishment, and the dating of Christ's return, and one essential that people say is an essential, and that is the definition of the Trinity. Uh, I have brothers who are trying to push, literally push me out of Christianity and into a schism of Mormonism, the faith I renounce. Like I used to say to the LDS, I say it to the, to the attackers, the Christians who are brothers, who probably mean, well, if you don't accept my views on eternal punishment, prove me wrong. Using the Bible. If you don't agree with my preterist stance, prove those stances wrong. Same with the Trinity, but stop the infighting. Accept my apologies. Accept our differences. Try to see what we're doing and why. I read a poem the other day out of a book I'm reading. It was written by Edwin Markham in 1913, and it's called Outwitted. This is what the poem says. He drew a circle that shut me out. Heretic, rebel, a thing to flout. But love and I had the wit to win, and we drew a circle that took him in. And with that, how about a moment from the Word? And I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse. As I said, it's my intention, which was originally kind of fomented in an attempt to create a place where Latter-day Saints could authentically come out of Mormonism and rest comfortably in the Christian faith. But my ambition is to argue, promote subjective, spirit-led Christian faith in response to what we call brick-and-mortar physical religion at the hands and management of men. Where Protestants claim sola scriptura and the authoritarian churches like Catholicism and Mormonism demand conformity to the traditions of men, I would suggest that the spirit is primary and preferential 
the word is secondary and referential, that all traditions are at best deferential, and that men and mortar Christian are inconsequential. In what we that was the Holy Spirit. <laughs> uh, in other words, everything is by the Spirit, supported by the Word. We might defer in times of question to tradition, and we ought to make men and their monuments of mortar inconsequential. But I want to refer to the Word to help illustrate my point here. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Listen closely to the tenor, to the words of Paul as he writes this chapter. Listen to how he appeals to things of the Spirit and how he literally distances himself from anything that has to do with men. Ready? He says, And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God, for I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Nothing about hell, trinity, end times, just Jesus and His crucifixion. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom. I once had a pastor tell me I should study Greek philosophy. I always think of this when I read these passages. But in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Howbeit, verse 6, we speak wisdom among them that are perfect, yet not the wisdom of this world, nor of princes of this world that come to naught, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. As it is written, eye has not seen nor ear heard, neither has entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them that love him. But God has revealed them unto us by His Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man, save the Spirit of man which is in him? Even so these things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God, which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teaches, but with the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. The natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, but they are because they are spiritually discerned. But he that is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. We have a thread through this. He wraps it up. For who hath known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Throughout that entire chapter, which I just read, Paul reiterates over and over and over spiritual things, not carnal things. Not the wisdom of man, not the teachings of man, not the insights of man, not the way men understand each other if through the spirit of man. None of that. It's all through the spirit of God. And that is how God has always led his church. Now, why can't every Christian see that men and man, their wisdom, their teachings are nothing in comparison to the spirit 
that if you know Christ crucified, you are free and moved by his spirit, that there are no intermediaries between you and Christ. No one to judge you. No one to make demands of you. No one to put you in chains of any sort. None. Their wisdom is foolishness. Seek God through his son by his spirit and truth and be free. And with that, how about a word of prayer? Lord, we seek you in spirit and in truth. Help us. Forgive me for the errors I am certainly going to make. And let people who are seeking truth overlook those. But by your spirit, discern all things, turning to your word to validate concepts that they are seeking to understand. We love you, Lord. We need you in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to embark on presenting some numbered points that are going to address the failure of sola scriptura, while at the same time proving uh, genuine Christianity has always been subjectively lived and has never been a proprietary product of Catholicism, Mormonism, Eastern Orthodoxy, Protestantism, or any other brick-and-mortar approach aimed at capturing and governing the faith. It's the spirit who runs and governs and moves, not men and buildings. Consider everything I'm going to say. Test them, challenge them, but don't dismiss them because you haven't heard them before. Uh, In talking about Sola Scriptura, we're really talking about what is called the rule of the Christian faith. What is it? Again, Catholics, Greek Orthodox, Mormons say it's their proprietary priesthood that is the rule of the Christian faith. Last week, we showed how failing their priesthoods and religious histories have been in terms of truth, in terms of good fruit. Protestants say that the rule of the Christian faith is sola scriptura, the Bible all by itself. And others, like me, suggest that the rule of the Church of Christianity is the Holy Spirit. That, again, the spirit is primary and preferential. The word is secondary and referential. That traditions are at best deferential. And things of men and mortar are inconsequential. How do I support this? We have to now look at the failure of the Protestant teaching called Scripture alone. And this is going to come by first looking at the historicity of the New Testament. When the New Testament writers spoke of Scripture in the New Testament canon, They were almost always speaking of the Old Testament. Almost always. One exception is when Peter said of Paul's writings, as also in all his epistles, meaning Paul, speaking of them in these things, in which some things are hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unable rest as they do other scriptures unto their own destruction. There we have Peter referring to Paul's epistles as scripture, and that would be part of the New Testament. That's the exception. I am not suggesting the epistles are not inspired, the gospel is not part of canon, but here's my point. Jesus never commanded the 12 to write anything. Have you ever considered that simple fact? Instead, he gave primacy to the act of preaching and teaching verbally. We have to note that Jesus himself never wrote anything. Instead, he taught, he preached, he spoke. 
Writing was certainly part of the Jewish history and tradition, so it wasn't like Jesus would have been doing something that, that was unheard of if he was writing. But instead, when he came, Jesus and his apostles taught, spoke. In Matthew 28, 20, when he commissioned the apostles, he said, go and teach, making disciples of all nations. In Mark 16, 15, we note that the apostles are commanded to go and preach to all the world. In Luke 10, 16, we read that whoever heard, hears or heard the 70 heard the Lord. We hear a lot about speaking and a lot about hearing all throughout the, uh, Jesus teaching the apostles. Nowhere do we see our Lord commissioning his apostles to evangelize the world in writing, in his name. The emphasis always on preaching the gospel, not printing and distributing the gospel. As a teacher of the word, I've always found myself sort of stymied when I read these passages in Romans chapter 10. I always say, this, this troubles me. This is what it says. You're familiar with these, beginning at verse 13. Paul writes, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe on him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of the gospel that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. Why doesn't Paul say there, and how shall they believe in him of whom they have not read? And how shall they read without a writer? And how shall they write unless they be sent? Listen, there are only a couple thousand bigger proponents, in my estimation, of the Bible on this earth right now than me. I love the Word of God. We sing it. I teach it verse by verse. I'm in it every day because of my love to it, I, for it. I love it. And I believe it is what sanctifies. It's what washes out the old. It is what increases faith. Do not think I am bashing on the written Word. Um, but the apostolic church was not founded on the written word. It was founded on the spoken word. Why? Because until someone has spiritual eyes, they cannot comprehend the written word. The written word was written to believers in that day and age and not to non-believers ever. Because to truly understand it, one has to have spiritual eyes. And so we preach and teach and people hear and their hearts are touched and changed by the spirit, by the preaching of the word. And only then does the written word make sense in their walk in life. So that's the first point. It's not exhaustive. It's just a point to consider. The writings were never commanded by Jesus and for good reason. The gospel and the conversion of people is by hearing Faith comes by hearing and by the Holy Spirit. The second point to consider is this. If there was ever a time in the history of Christianity that the whole written word, as we have it right now in our hands, was needed, it would seem it would be in the first 100, 200, 300 years of the faith. That is when we would, I mean, if sola scriptura is so important, it would seem to me that if there was ever a period of time when they needed it, it would have been then. 
But God didn't seem to give it to them then, did he? He gave them something else. What was it? The Holy Spirit. The apostles could only be in, in 12 places at one time. The gospel was going out to thousands and thousands of people. 12 guys. No, it wasn't the apostles. It's the Holy Spirit. Jesus left, sent the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit brings people to Christ. That is what kept the church together in those first 100, 200, 300 years. I mean, think of all the people who were swayed and lost due to heresy, the Gnostics, the Judaizers, the Arianists, all of that. If God had only produced and gathered and printed the Gospels and the epistles and the letters of Revelation prior to the day of Pentecost, then all of those people would have been saved. They would have seen clearly what the, what the truth was, right? Wrong, wrong. So where Luther and Calvin cried in 1517 on, sola scriptura, this is what it's all about. God himself had another means to govern at a time when the people needed his guidance most. And it wasn't by the written word. They didn't even know, agree upon it, first of all, plus a number of other things we're going to get to. If God governed by his Holy Spirit from Pentecost on through the first couple hundred years, why did men think they had the right to say Scripture is primary 1,500 years later? Give me a break. Have you ever asked why the Protestant reformers never said sola spiritus? They never, ever said Instead of sola scripture, they said sola spiritus. The Bible plainly teaches sola spiritus. You have to really do some gymnastics to make the Bible say sola scriptura. You have to. And that's what they did. Because they had one now that could be read, and so they made it. This is what it is now. But if we're going to look at the traditions and the history of the church, it was never uh, sola scriptura. Third point, Scripture says all believers are of one faith, one Lord, one baptism. Anyone who has spent any time in the Word knows this is possible only by the Spirit. When Jesus prayed the intercessory prayer in John 17, He asked that He and His apostles would be one with the Father. One of the biggest fallouts of man-made solo Scripture premise is it created division which is the work of Satan, not God. Go online today. You want division? Read the vitriol that falls from the lips of people who claim, verse in hand, that they love Jesus while they rip you to shreds over doctrinal points by sola scriptura. I mean, it is a bloodbath, and that is just online. This is the result of looking into words and making words superior to the Holy Spirit, which pushes love. That's the difference. It's caused by the New Testament becoming the new law, you see, and instead of the Word of God truly serving as a double-edged sword, dividing asunder between an individual's soul and spirit and bringing them to understand who God is, it has been used as a literal sword to divide the body and sometimes literally people. God always longed for people to love him and to love each other. Going all the way back to Deuteronomy and Leviticus, given laws written in stone, the children of Israel could not get around or away from their flesh, and they used those laws written in stone to create a system of religion that 
did not love God and did not love man. It failed them both. And Jesus proved this when he came in the flesh. Humans by nature hate a vacuum. Spinoza taught that in the absence of absolutes, which living by the Spirit tends to produce, not absolutes, but kind of walking by him, the reformers glommed onto the New Testament and made it a new law. The new commandment, forgetting that Jesus had already given us a new commandment to love. They made the New Testament the new law. And they said, this is what we are going to govern with. And it just became another form of law written in stone by which we kill and crush and maim and divide and attack and do it all in God's name. Thinking because we can cite a specific passage, we have the right to treat a brother or sister badly. <sighs> Love is only possible by the Spirit. It is impossible when we take words written on paper and try to decipher for ourselves what they mean. We can see that. The Catholic claim of apostolic authority, what they say is required to keep peace in the body. We see what that produced. The Mormons claim of apostolic restoration, they say was to ensure restoration of uniformity to the earth of Christ's church. We see what that has produced. We spent years discussing it. The Protestants proclaim sola scriptura. How come we never really admit openly what that has produced? Look at what it's produced. Luther himself bemoaned the results of his actions. This is what Luther said. Listen, unfortunately, it is our daily experience that now under the gospel, meaning now we have this description, the truth, the people entertain greater and bitter hatred and envy and are worse with their avarice and money grabbing than before under the papacy, end quote. You know what he's saying there? This sola scriptura stance, this pull away from the, the, the Catholic church has made people more, more full of avarice, more money grubbing than they did when they were in the Catholic church, full, more full of bitter hatred and great, and they entertain envy worse than they ever did. The, the Protestants today and those who defend it say sola scriptura has liberated. Sola scriptura has created such division and hatred. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable what Protestantism has created. If the doctrine of sola scriptura were true, it would be effective. It would be capable of doing the will of God, which is to produce the fruit of the Spirit. If the doctrine of sola scriptura were true, we would have a history of harmony and unity, peace, and above all, love, than the results that we have seen in Protestantism around the globe since 1517. Instead, the results that we have mock the Lord's Prayer for unity of mind, doctrine, peace today. We have not only utterly contradictory beliefs and practices, but thousands of Protestant sects and denominations all claiming to use the Bible as sola scriptura and their guide. Of course, the claim by defenders of sola scriptura is, we don't differ on any of the essentials. We're only differing on the non-essentials. A casual analysis of this proves it is a tremendous facade. There are major differences in Protestantism on baptism, its purpose, the meaning, the mode, 
on salvation, how it comes, when it comes, who's in charge of it coming, whether or not it can be lost or not. These are major theological discussions. Who initiates salvation? On works, on Sabbath observances, even on the nature of God and Jesus Christ. Christianity under the Spirit, listen, Christianity under the Spirit has never lost a single soul. Christianity by the Spirit has never killed anyone. Christianity by the Holy Spirit has never pushed believers to divide over unimportant doctrinal issues. Never. The Spirit has governed perfectly since Christ ascended, since the day of Pentecost. Perfectly. And brought all who are His sheep right into the gates of heaven. But sola scriptura and all this other stuff has done nothing but destroy them. Spirit-led Christianity has always been one faith, one Lord, one baptism. Christianity has always been manifested in love for 2,000 years. That is how people have known who are Christians and who are not, by their love. But men have always made it something else. When Jesus said in Matthew 12 that by the fruit the tree is known, I would strongly suggest that when we apply this to Catholicism, Mormonism, and Protestantism, there's a fail. All we got to do is look at their fruit. Can the fruit tree of Protestantism support the claim that it's a good tree? Jesus said a tree can't produce good fruit and bad, and bad fruit. A tree is going to produce all good fruit because it's a good tree or all bad fruit because it's a bad tree. It can't produce one and the other. It doesn't work that way. What has Protestantism been? What has Catholicism been? The authoritarian church has been nothing but bad fruit because it produced some bad fruit. You can say, well, there's good fruit in there too. It can't be good if there's also bad. It's either a good tree or it's a bad tree. You tell me. Only the Spirit has and always will produce good fruit from Pentecost on and is therefore the only good tree and is the only source that we can turn to to actually truly walk the true Christian life. I realize that fear comes from this proclamation. People say, but what about people who say things like Jesus isn't God, that God has a body, that water baptism's necessary for salvation? Love, love, patience, long-suffering, teach the word. Read the word, teach it. Let them have their differing opinions. <gasps> But, 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 what about people who come to the flock on Sunday and proclaiming apostasies and heresies who are living in sins? What about people who smell of scotch on Sundays and sometime of the ganj? What do we do with them? We love them. We love them. We welcome them in their heresies. We, we don't have to worry. The Holy Spirit is there governing people who have the Holy Spirit with them. And they reach out to these people who smell and stink and do and believe. And we just love them in and they learn and they grow and they, they are changed by love, not by division. Never by division. What about? That's right. Love. It's all love. It's always been always love, and that's what the Spirit does. 
Remember the fruit of the Spirit is love. The body is Jesus' body. Conversion, growth, unity, discipline are all in the hands of the Holy Spirit. He disciplines believers in and through love. And that comes from us. Not law, not by words which are interpreted and debated ad nauseum forever. Not by feigned authority. But what about the word? We teach the word. We teach it, we preach it, we appeal to it as a reference to all that we claim. We spend all of our time in it. It's the living word, but it and disputes over it can never take precedence over patience, long-suffering, joy, gentleness, temperance, faith, meekness, love. One final point, and we'll open up the phone lines. We have a whole bunch coming in the weeks to come. The idea of sola scriptura is manifestly man-made and in complete contradiction from the word and what God says. How can I say this? Literacy, literacy rates over the course of Christian history. Let me explain. Literacy for much of human history directly correlates to affluence, social status, which relates to material wealth, which relates to education, which relates to human intelligence. When the Protestant Reformation reformers boldly proclaimed sola scriptura, it was as if they had said, even though they probably didn't mean this, but it's as if they had said the gospel and all of its importance to Christianity will forever be in the hands of the affluent, the educated, those with social status, therefore those with educations and those who are intelligent. That's essentially what it came down to be. It's also as if they were tacitly stating that educated people ought to be the ones who are in power and teaching the word because they could read and those who have the ability to read would again understand God better than those who couldn't. The natural result of these stances would be the power in the Protestant churches falling always on the educated, which is frequently the case, especially today, while the poor and down and outcast and uneducated are ignored. There's two major problems with the stance. Literacy rates are the first. Estimations around the world between the 4th and 5th century all the way out to the 17th century are that world literacy rates hovered at around 15%. That means 15 people out of 100 could read and write. Even as recently as just the 1800s, literacy rates remained in the low 30s, 30%. That means 70 people of 100 could not read while 30 could. And it wasn't until the 1900s where worldwide rates started to average out in the 50%, unless you were in developed uh, power countries where it reaches in the 99% levels. So based on literacy rates alone, most of Christian history has been shrouded in illiteracy and people's inability to read. They haven't been able to read. It's really an aloof God who sends his sons to son to save us, sends his apostles out to share the good news orally, and then in a very illiterate world, sinners, everything on a book, very few people can read, let alone understand. Does that make any sense to you? For 1,500 years, we have people who 
can't read, and if they could read, they probably can't understand what they're reading, and that God has said sola scriptura from the beginning instead of sola spiritus? Even more to the point, Christianity is not a faith of the strong. Christianity is, never has been. It's a faith of the weak, of the base, of the despised, the foolish things of the world. Wouldn't a loving God who is seeking to reach people who are the most humble, who are typically then the most uneducated, reach them through means like preaching and his spirit and love rather than written words that most of the weak, abased, foolish have never been able to read or comprehend? Doesn't that make some logical sense to you when you consider it? I mean, I meet very intelligent people today who are educated, who they can't even understand like the King James Version. They read it and they say, I, don't, I can't make sense of this. Bottom line is, Sola Scriptura ends up being a power play. And it ends up being the control of the religion in the hands of the educated. And, and Jesus' own apostles were fishermen. The people who he went to were the abased and the lowly and the lost and the sinful. The people who couldn't read. How would God reach those people who Christ came for through Sola Scriptura? He'd never do it. And we haven't even gotten into, and we're going to next week, the Latin. We haven't even gotten into when the Bible was put together. These are just some rational thoughts. I'm not against education. I'm certainly not against the Bible being read, taught, and used as a reference to all Christian living. But my point is to show, to prove the illogical nature of the Sola Scriptura stance, while simultaneously proving that Christianity has been and is entirely subjective and led of the Spirit, not the men of mortar and their authority. Let's open up the phone lines, 801-590-8413, 801 5908413 We had a man from Ireland send us this clip and uh, what it does what it is it's of a man who has 9 million I think Twitter followers he is extremely influential in the British Isles he's a noted television host personality and he's being interviewed on a show and this is what the man has to say. Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world which is so full of injustice and pain? I, I, haven't, pre I haven't prepared anything to respond to uh, this man. Uh, to quote him, his response, his first one was bone cancer in children. That's what he would ask God. He said God is stupid. He's unjust. He says he's capricious. He's a maniac. He's totally selfish. It's simply, he says, not acceptable. <laughs> it's, non, it's monstrous, and we have, should have no respect for this God. What led this man to these ideas about God? Part of it is our own fault because we have decided to portray God as being capricious, as being someone who is willing to damn most of the world to eternal punishment and saving a few, as being someone who pours out justice unmercifully on people and seems to be an absentee manager when it comes to this, this life in this world.
I blame us in some respect from what I've heard taught and the things I've seen and the way the Bible has been presented. I blame ourselves for him having that, that point of view. How come he was never taught about God who really loved us, but he loved us so much that he gave us freedom? And with that freedom, we've created one heck of a mess. And in order to maintain freedom and in order to maintain being just and in order to allow people to do what they want to do, he's had to let the thing go the route it's gone. I mean, how come that has never been taught to this guy? Or maybe it has. Maybe he's just so dark and deep he doesn't want to see it. I don't know. I feel bad for him. And I feel bad for the professors who are going to be teaching our teens and our college kids in the future more and more about this type of God. And they're going to tell them to look at him until we get our own house in order with some reasonable views of God and Scripture. We're going to see more and more of this continually compound upon people. And it's so sad because they don't know the true and living God and they don't realize all that's behind him. I wish I could spend some time with that guy someday and talk uh, just to hear what he has to say. Uh, in response to some reasonable Christianity, which I think the Bible does provide. Let's go to Frank in Big Ben, Wisconsin. Frank, you're on Heart of the Matter. Yes. Um, I, I'm an evangelical Christian, and I do some Bible study with an, a, a populistic, I believe is the way you say it. And I like your show, by the way. I mean, you give everybody a lot to think about it, and I really think you do a great job. Thanks, Frank. But he, he is always throwing stuff at me whenever I question the, uh, the doctrines about, um, you know, water baptism and stuff like that. And, you know, you, you touch on some of those matters. But he hit me the other night with something that I couldn't really go back with. Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 17 and 18. Let's look it up. Okay. Second Timothy chapter 2. Verses 17 and 18. Is that in the New Testament? Just kidding. Yes, it is. <laughs> All right. 17. That's a good joke. <laughs> it's, the joke's always on me, Frank. No. Uh, okay. You don't know me very well then. <laughs> okay. 2 Timothy 2, 17 and 18. Yep. And their word will eat us as doth a canker, of whom is Hymene and Philetus, who concerning the truth have erred, saying that the resurrection is past already, and overthrow the faith of some. Okay, so what's the question? Well, you know, you say the resurrection is, has already come, and that's saying the way he interpreted it to me, that people are going to come around and say that, okay, the resurrection's already come, and it's error. It's, it's not true. That yep. the, he, he comes at it with that verse to say that verse right there says that the resurrection hasn't come. It's aired. Yeah, and he's, he's absolutely correct. When Paul wrote this, the resurrection, the Christ's second coming, had not occurred. This is, oh, okay. Yeah, this was okay. written pre-70 A.D., so when people were running around and some were saying he's come, he's come, and some were saying the resurrection's already happened, and these apostles were constantly clarifying, no, a lot has to go on before that happens, and all that, so that, your, your friend is right. At that point in scripture, the resurrection and Jesus' return had not happened. That's the best way to explain that. Okay, at that point in scripture, okay. Yeah, uh, all of scripture 
In fact, Frank, the whole New Testament are apostolic writings that took place in a very, very small window of time, and they pertain to the church at that time. And you'll note that the apostles were constantly telling the believers, hang on, he's going to save us. Don't give up. Don't apostatize. The times are coming. It's coming soon. It's coming quick. Look out, it's around the corner. And that is the context of all of those letters. And so when he says Hymenaeus or whatever his name was is saying the resurrection's happened, he's lying to you. Look, it's coming down the road. That's all it is. Okay, so that's where you keep coming back and saying put it in context, in the proper context. Absolutely. Because, I mean, I can, I can understand where, I mean, I, I was taught to look at the Bible totally different. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, I and mean, you're, a, you're an eye-opener, I can tell you that right now. So well, I'll let you get on with your show. You do a great job. Keep it up. Thanks, Frank. God bless. Thank you. God bless you. My wife says I'm an eye-opener every time I get out of the shower. <laughs> it's like this. <gasps> Maybe an eye-closer. <laughs> A question offline, why do you believe God let all these religions exist when all they do is put people in bondage? God is a God of freedom. I mean, why does he let Marxism and, and, and the gulags uh, exist and, and child prostitution and pornography? He's an interesting God. He could come down, and I think probably one of the first people to scream, unfair, give me my freedom, would be the guy who was just on that show we watched. If God came down and forced us and he said, we're cleaning up this and everybody would be like, you don't give me a chance to choose you. You don't give me a chance to let you're just making me be good. You know, and well, I'm doing that voice a lot tonight. And, uh, you know, that is not our God. Our God is so beautiful, so loving, so bent on freedom and liberty that he said, listen, this world sucks. It fell into sin. I knew it would. From the foundation of the world, I have my son and I'm going to send him and he's going to save it. He's going to redeem it and reconcile it right back to me. He so loved us. Now we're left with a choice. Do we accept him or not? Why do I think all these religions exist? I think they do for kind of because God is allowing us to learn to love each other. I think he's made the word, which is so beautiful, very difficult. And between these difficult passages, we have tension. And we have people who love the Lord who say, I'm a Calvinist. And we have people who say, love the Lord, and they say, I'm an Arminianist. And you have people who love the Lord, and they say, I'm a Catholic. And you have people who say, I love the Lord, and I'm a Mormon. And man, when we hear those names in that circle, we say, no freaking way do you love the Lord. And then we start doing it. And I am so guilty of it. I'm so guilty of it. And I'm so sorry for, for that approach. I believe Mormonism, yes, is false. But nevertheless, when someone says they love the Lord, who am I? Who am I to judge their heart and what they believe? My job is to love them and teach the word in context. Absolutely, the best I can. Let's go to Chad in Las Vegas. Chad, you are on Heart of the Matter. Oh, hey, how you doing? Is this Sean? Yeah, Sean. Hey, cool. Oh, uh, yeah, there's a little bit of a delay on the Feed. Yeah, that's so that we don't get kicked off the air. Oh, that's all good. I didn't expect it to happen. I was just about to write down my question, so I didn't forget it. But I actually just stumbled across you online, and I just I really enjoy your videos and your ministry. So uh, thank you, and uh, thank the Lord. Praise the Lord for putting you in that in that place. 
Yes. But um, I just watched this Trinity oneness debate that you had with, uh, I don't know the guy's names, but um, it's, uh, it, was, it was so interesting. And I will say this, just to give you credit, that you show so much more love than the, the opposition who is just pounding this doctrine. And, and it seemed like such semantics. Like when it came down, it was like arguing over the, almost the same. It was such a similar definition of the yeah. one God that we, that we do worship. And it, I thought that was interesting. But I did have a question for you, yeah. and I just, I just turned this on, so I just caught the last question. Have you looked at, well, two-part question, have you looked at the biblical calendar, what most people call the Jewish calendar, but what I, what I like to call it, it's God's calendar? Have you looked at that, and, and, and I ask that in regards to, I don't understand, I haven't really heard a lot of your beliefs and stuff, and I really enjoy watching, I just haven't got to this point, but do you believe that... that Christ has already come and gone, or yeah, can you clarify? Yes, I, I believe that his return uh, was in the clouds. I think it came in 70 AD with the destruction of Jerusalem. I am not, certainly not alone in this thought. There are plenty of Christians. It's just not talked about because the, the popular belief is he's still going to return. But I think right. that scripture supports what I have to say. I have looked at uh, the, the Jewish calendar. I can't say I know much about it, but I have looked at some of the uh, arguments using it. Preteristarchive.com is a good place to go. But what we have 13 shows. You'd have to go through them because we try to present everything out there. You may watch them and say, I still disagree. That's fine. You're my brother. And you may be right. It's just my view. And, and that's how I see it. Do you, what are your feelings on the, because the one thing I was, I'm new at this and I, and I share your view on the, uh, major problem of the, how people, how man has infiltrated the Bible, the unleavened word of God, and how it's been totally leavened with the same thing that the Jews were doing when Christ came the first time, which was adding and taking away from the, the, Amen. the time, the Tanakh. Amen. And it's caused so, so much problems. And I really share that, and I see this passion that you have, and I love it. But the one thing that I've been led to, and I was, I was delivered from 10 years prison in 2013 on Valentine's Day, which turned out to be a biblical calendar day called the Feast of Purim. And, I, and I'm not Jewish at all, but I, God has led me to this Jewish thing. And I don't know, I don't completely understand why yet, but it's everything in my life and my walk since 2013 has been a constant reminder of what I believe, because he, he's led me to this as well. There's a prophecy in Zechariah that says um, that all of the whole world will go back on the appointed times, or what's called in the, in the it's called feast, but it would be like the Moedim, the appointed times, so that the whole world will acknowledge the feast again, the three major feasts, um, which would be uh, Passover, which is coming up, um, uh, Pentecost, and Tabernacles, I want to say. I could be wrong, but I, I believe that's it. I, I still am learning so much about it, but do I, you see that coming with like all these blood moons? Like we had the two blood moons last year. We got two coming up. There's, uh, this total, there's a total solar eclipse that's coming on uh, March 20th, just, just right around the corner, and that's the first of Nisan in the biblical calendar. Yeah. Like All this craziness is going on, and, and it's all marking... Even from 9-11, I was a big 9-11 truth guy. I was in the Marine Corps and started seeing all these lies and all this stuff. And 
Um, even that was on the biblical calendar. There, there's a guy that kind of does this. I don't. Are you aware of the like the harbinger and all that stuff? Yeah, yeah. I've seen some what of that. What are your thoughts on that? Do you, you know, I, 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 I really believe in the shows that we did on the, on the end times, we spent one show and we never finished just going and, and reciting all the claims, all the rationales, all the reasoning behind why Jesus was coming dated back to the uh, first century. And they're convincing. I mean, there were people who killed themselves uh, when they were expecting the destruction to come upon them, and that was like in the 1000 AD. We have always been a people who have been looking for signs, seeing signs, using the scripture to see the signs, and yep. then we formulate our beliefs and our thoughts around them. Um, there's answers for those, I believe. I can't articulate them there, but Preterist Archive, take your stuff, look at blood moons, search it out. Call us back in a few weeks after you've done that and say, you know, I'm still not convinced, and maybe you can enlighten us on a few key points. Okay, cool. I'll definitely check it out, for sure. Thanks I really so appreciate what you do, man. I'm looking forward to uh, digging into some of those videos, and I'll check that out. All right, Chad. Thanks for calling. Thanks for watching. All right. Bye-bye. Right. Uh, there's an article on the Tucson uh, Sun, and it's all star, and it's all about the uh, Arizona University has had a Christian cult on their premises for the past 25 years. And the article is really interesting. It was given to me by Wendy. And uh, it, it talks all about the signs of the Christian cult and uh, so many things about them. Uh, this one guy, Lawrence Alfred, says it took away their, the members' freedom incrementally. If you ever go to a church and you start to feel the tightening noose incrementally, you are losing your freedoms. Um, uh, some of you guys have turned me on to a book by Cecil Hook, which I'm reading right now, and he was back, way back, phenomenal on freedom in Christ. There's a sign over here uh, to my uh, a right you can't see, and it says freedom in Christ. It, Christ came for liberty. And if you are in a church or an organization where they are starting to incrementally tighten up on you, whether it comes to giving financially, giving time, supporting the activities, um, of course, how you dress, what you eat, your sin, sin monitoring, family monitoring, how to discipline children. All of this stuff starts coming when men start getting wrapped up in their head that they think they're going to be controlling the, this church and they're being good shepherds. And uh, this, this is a really interesting article about how they do it. And uh, I don't have time because we only have three minutes left and we have an off-air question. This says, I notice when people use their way of seeing the Bible, they overuse the words. It clearly says, I started to really dislike this phrase and know that good gives wisdom and understand God gives wisdom. Uh, Danita, God is spelled with an uppercase G and not two O's. That God gives wisdom and understanding to those that love and those that like to show others how unclear they are. Have you noticed this too? You know, uh, it clearly says, uh, I, I've noticed a few things uh, when I used to get online before I had a nervous breakdown. And, uh, and I know there's re repeated things that are said on there. I haven't noticed that it clearly says, but I'm sure clearly, you know, it's a demeaning phrase. Clearly, I've used it. 
It's a way to own someone, say my view's better than yours. And so, um, good point. I'm just worried about Danita back there. Uh, we had some, uh, some sacramental wine that's missing. And, uh, you know, it really gets serious. It's <laughs> just kidding. Uh, if you have challenges about eternal punishment, if you have challenges about end times, watch the shows, www.hotm.tv. Also, you can watch us teach the word verse by verse through the New Testament and through, the, uh, uh, through milk and meat by going to campuschurch.tv. They're live. You can do it on Sundays. You can also go and watch the archives and you can hear the things that we have to say uh, relative to um, the uh, uh, scripture. Uh, uh, really quickly, this is from David uh, Anson B. He says that he likes subjective Christianity and what we're presenting, I, and it makes a lot of sense, but for me to wrap it up with the arbitrary idea of Jesus' return in 70 AD uh, doesn't make much sense to him. He thinks that uh, I should remove the 70 AD concept to subjective Christianity. Thank you, David. I, I, first, I agree. 70 or D, AD or not, the faith is based in Scripture, subjectively lived and applied by the Holy Spirit, each individual. The preterist view, in my opinion, removes one obstacle to the argument against subjective Christianity, and it's if the Lord is still coming for His church, then the institution of the church does make more sense to me. And taking the, the New Testament literally as the early church model and applying it makes more sense to me. But if, if preterism is true and holds water, then it completely erases that argument and it lets us know that God is, just, is harvesting individual souls. He already came back for his church and it's the individual now where it all lies. And that's why I approach it that way. Listen, join us next week. We're going to get more into reasons why Sola Scriptura fail. We hope it is increasing in your knowledge, your ideas. If it's changing something, praise God. Uh, if it's causing you to think, praise God. We love you. We'll see you next week here on Heart of the Matter. I'm on a ride going nowhere I am an existential cowboy on the wind and I won't be coming out I'm going this man's awake a storm's arising the dawn's waiting till a hundred monkeys know And I can feel the light 